Welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Valente, and this is a show dedicated to telling the story of coastal advocacy and shining a light on people that are being kind to the planet. Each episode, you will meet a person or group of people that are driven to leave this world in a better place than they found it. I'm joined today by Jen Long, founder of the Whale Guitar Project. And I asked Jen to come on the show today because the work she's doing um, through the Whale Guitar Project is incredibly inspiring and is expanding the boundaries of what ocean advocacy looks like by operating at the cross-section of the arts, conservation, and education. Jen, thank you for being here today and taking time out of this lovely fall day to share your story with us. Oh, thank you, Jenna. I'm so excited to be here. Really happy to be here. Thank you. So quickly before we carry on with the rest of the episode, let's pause for a brief message from our sponsors. Dune Doctors uh, is a consulting firm that does dune restoration consulting out of Pensacola, Florida. Yep. DuneDoctors.com for the full details. Peter, tell us a little bit about Frederic. Frederic Barasat is the owner of that company, so she's a hub vendor for all you folks out there who are bidding on contracts. Uh, Frederic's a real professional, 17 years in Pensacola. They'll take you from dune design through permitting into construction. Great firm. Thank you, Dune Doctors, uh, for being a sponsor on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Okay, so now that we've got the business out of the way, let's dive deeper into your advocacy story. I always like to start with getting to know people first before learning more about your work, because I think it's important to highlight the infinite different paths that people take during their lives um, to end up in conservation advocacy and working in this space. Um, Because not only do I find it fascinating, but it also can be really valuable and helpful to people that are trying to um, start a career in this field or, or, you know, be better stewards for the planet. Um, And it's just really interesting to hear everybody's story. Um, So can you start off by sharing with us a little bit about where you're from and what drove you into the art and conservation world? Sure, so I am from Euclid, Ohio, and Euclid is the first suburb east of Cleveland. And um, I grew up at the time of the notorious Cuyahoga River catching on fire. So we were very aware of pollution. Um, our lake was, uh, is a very shallow, it's the most shallow of the Great Lakes. And so it had a lot of pollution issues and later developed a, a zebra mussel issue as well. But that, then that seemed to help actually clean it up for a while. Um, and then I moved away, so I'm not really quite sure. but. As a child, uh, remembering that this river caught fire and it was in the news and people were um, very upset about it. Also, I grew up uh, just a few blocks down from the Lubrizol plant, which made, um, I think it's motor lubricants, okay. things like that. And waking up some mornings and you could scrape like this sludge off the windows of your cars and wondering like, is that in my lungs? Oh my gosh. Yeah, and you could always hear the freeway going by. So I was, you know, there were these reminders around us constantly. Um, and I, I think I was just thoughtful that way. And I, I was often thinking about these issues. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the zebra mussels, and that brought me back to um, my prior job to the one that I have now, 
um, working with the Chesapeake Bay program. And we started to see zebra mussels being a really large um, hindrance up in the northern reaches of the Chesapeake Bay watershed mm-hmm. um, because they are this, this giant invasive species. But it is interesting that you mentioned how they have that they have that filtering power, so they do clean all the water, but um, it's almost like a pros and cons situation with how many of them are there and what yeah, kind of damage are they doing and yeah yeah situation. which really is the name of the game in terms of ecosystem management anyway mm-hmm. is right. trying to find that that balance yeah my understanding is that they came from russia they were in the bilge of a russian freighter that came through and um and then they just got dispersed everywhere and there was some my understanding is i could be wrong there was a threat to the walleye as a result of the zebra mussels and walleye is really super tasty fish that comes out of Lake Erie. So Yeah, so when they start over out competing all the native species, I feel like that's when you really have a an issue on your hands and need to think about how we manage um, our native species and our waterways in a way that we can continue to protect and conserve all of the the wildlife and the people and um, everything that relies on that body of water. Right. Yeah. Um, So do you think that your roots in terms of your passion for art also were influenced by where you grew up? More so, I think, by relatives in my family who who were artists. My grandfather was an amazing, um, he could draw anything, but he put that away uh, very young in life. He, we have a few images that he drew. We, we believe it might be my grandmother. Um, and there were just those beautiful pen and ink sketches. My Aunt Alice also drew, my Aunt Marge drew. Um, so there was this understanding that there was an artistic vein in the family. And um, I also remember one of the things that very much influenced me, Lake Erie was a huge influence on me. And I remember the first sunset I ever saw in the lake and I was just so dazzled by it. I was about eight and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And for months afterwards, anytime I had a pen, I would just scribble the sunset and I would show it to somebody. I'm like, look at this, look at this, look at this. And they told me I was going to be a starving artist. (laughs) (laughs) And here you are today. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, I love that story because I feel like so many people I've spoken with that work in the conservation field have a specific memory or a specific place that really ingrained that sense of stewardship in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it sounds like Lake Erie might be that place oh, yeah, for you. A couple other points about Lake Erie. Um, uh, Wyland, the painter Wyland, who paints okay. those enormous whale scenes. Yes, he is, he is like ocean famous. Yeah. <laughs> in our ocean conservation famous. space, he's a big deal. And he painted a, a big storage facility on the on Lake Erie with whales. And we just thought it was so weird. And we're like, there's no whales in Lake Erie. But it did something in my mind. You know, I, it gave me this yearning to go beyond the lake and to see the ocean and eventually ended up moving to the ocean. 
and realize how interconnected it all is. So yeah. we also work really closely with the group through um, my position with the Healthy Oceans Coalition and American Littoral Society called the Inland Ocean Coalition. And we've gone to conferences with them and anytime we do public events with them, um, even bridging that gap between you might be in the middle of the country um, advocating for ocean conservation. Like I think sometimes people miss that connection um, and realize don't realize that what they do on the ground, even if they're thousands of miles away from a coast, is still going to work its way out there. Yeah. All leads to the ocean. Yeah. So that's really impactful that he took it upon himself to start spreading that messaging so long ago with painting these murals and making people think about the coast. I saw that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it definitely got into my psyche. Um, I also had my kids in Cleveland, and we lived right on very near the lake. And um, just being aware that there were times you couldn't swim there because of the bacteria count or the algae was taking over. Um, Also, uh, the the issues with fish, you can not necessarily Lake Erie fish, but... um, when you're buying fish that you had to be careful about not eating too much tuna and that it really started to make me think about how much are we dissipating out into the world that fish from way out in the ocean are carrying these industrial contaminants in their in their cells Mm -hmm. and then gets into our cells yeah, and it works its way up the food system. And, and what's something that's really concerning to me, and I know a lot of other people that work in the conservation space, is that's now happening with microplastics and yes. plastic pollution. Yes. Um, it's getting into our fish, and then things are eating those fish, and then those contaminants get into their bodies, which then we eat, and now we're all, everybody has we're plastic, plastic in them. <laughs> Yeah. It's a plastic world. It really it's is. terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with the, I, going back to your comment about the algae blooms um, around the Great Lakes. So I will admit that I am not super knowledgeable about the Midwest and Great Lakes regions. Um, but I know down in the Chesapeake Bay area, a lot of those algae blooms are a result of the heavy agricultural practices that are happening out there. Um, is that a, is that the similar thing that you're you're seeing with Lake Erie and the Great Lakes? Is is it's driven largely in part because of agriculture? My understanding is that it is. There, um, Ohio grows corn and soy in in massive uh, agribusiness um, capacities, and that requires lots of fertilization, which ends up, ends up draining into the lake, and then you get these blooms. Yes. So for listeners that may be um, not as well versed with the cause of what causes major algae blooms um, frequently. So they are naturally occurring. Algae blooms do happen on their own. Um, But lately, and many of you may have seen in news with what Florida is facing, um, and you see a lot of algae blooms happen in the Chesapeake Bay, which lead to things called dead zones. Um, A lot of those are caused because of excess nutrients, which come from things like fertilizer on agricultural fields. So excess phosphorus and nitrogen running into our waterways and then feeding out into a larger body of water where there's algae and that those excess nutrients really just um, spike the growth in the algae population. And so when those 
little microscopic plants and organisms die, they um, deplete the the water of oxygen, and that's what leads to a dead zone because it will kill things that swim through it or if you have things that are secured to the bottom like oysters or mussels, um, they no longer are able to breathe and they pass on. It's amazing that you go from this super nutrient state to this dead zone. It's confusing because of the word nutrient. Like People don't think, oh, it's a problem. It's just got more nutrients. But the reality is any too much of any good thing is is can be catastrophic. Yeah, it can be harmful. Yeah. Um, so have you, I know you mentioned your grandfather was um, a big artist, and that's always played a role in your life. Um, so were you, did you know that you would be involved in the arts from, from a very young age? Um, and then specifically speaking to your music um, passion, your, your passion for music, um, has that been something you've done since you were a kid, or did you learn that later in life? Much later in life. Um, I, so I was, I'm one of eight kids. And what happens when, when there's eight kids, a certain trait gets kind of assigned to each kid, you know, so that, I, I don't know, that's just the way my, it was managed in my family. Um, and so I was the artistic one. I mean, there are other artistic ones, but that that's something that was of note with me as mm-hmm. a kid. So it was both um, a characteristic that was notable, but also a kind of a point of anxiety, I think, too, because I came from an industrial family, and that was like, my, and my grandfather gave it up, and so did everyone else to, be, to take industrial kinds of jobs. Um, and so it was like, oh, you'll be a starving artist. You can't do that, you know. Um, that's, that's great that you can do that, but <laughs> but let's do something that makes more money. You got to make yeah. money. So I became an industrial designer. Okay. Right. So um, that you know my my was more acceptable, and so I studied industrial design at Cleveland Institute of Art, and um, I went late. I started art school at 29. I already had two kids. Went to art school, and I knew when I got out. First of all, I couldn't go to a state school because the only school near me was a private one, and I didn't want to uproot my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started art school at 29 and with two kids, and um, when I got out, I got hired by Fisher-Price to design toys. So we moved to Buffalo, and I designed toys, and I'd, I've been a designer of toys for like 20 years, something like that. And are you still designing toys? No, <laughs> because as I began, I had this epiphany with this whale guitar project, um, which we'll explain a little bit later, but uh, it made me more and more aware of these plastic issues that we just spoke about, the microplastics and um you know, right now, most specifically, we talk about the microplastics and the single-use plastics, and toys really aren't um, the plastics that are in this category that people are seeing as so detrimental. But as somebody who had become, started advocating for the ocean, I couldn't live with it anymore. I just couldn't do it anymore. I, In my heart, I just couldn't do it anymore. 
So I've been trying to figure out what I can do because now I'm a starving artist. (laughs) (laughs) It's come full circle. It's come full circle. (laughs) And then the music piece, well, um, there were also musicians in my family, but it was a couple generations back, and that was another one. Well, that's great. You can do that. But you're going to starve, you know. So uh, I had always begged for music lessons as a kid, but never, that was not going to happen in my family. I come from a very sports-oriented family. My father was a pitcher, and he was a, um, could pitch left or right, and all the boys went through all the sports. Um, and music was just not, music was my dad pulling out the vinyl and curating um, his collection and being the expert about what good music was and which meant if you brought home a Ted Nugent album and he said uh, an F-bomb that <laughs> record got broken over my dad's knee and thrown against so the So what wall. kind of music did your dad <laughs> prefer? Oh. What kind of, what were you raised on? I was raised on um, Louis Prima which was awesome um Ray Conniff, not so awesome. It's sort of like he takes every... I hope my dad's not listening. But he (laughs) takes everything and he kind of turns it into this orchestrated sing-along-ish thing that I... I I don't know. I didn't love that as much. But I loved Louis Prima. And um, he loved someone named Jenny... Joni James? Joni James, I think her name was. Um... There was some good stuff. Yeah, I always love hearing who people were raised on because I I think that that is so formative to your own taste in music, whether it was you not loving what your parents were listening to or on the flip side, you know, those songs now and those artists now bring this giant sense of nostalgia and take you back to this place. So um, it's super interesting to hear what you were raised on. And then it made me think about what my parents always played. And that was a lot of like Creedence Clearwater and the Eagles and um, Zeppelin and Dylan. And that's what we were. Yeah. (laughs) That was the stuff that risked getting broken over the knee. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's really great. My father. So there was this big love of music. My dad actually built our, um, our stereo speakers. And I can remember just bearing my ear into the cloth on the side of it to, to hear the music and also we had albums of stories like Hansel and Gretel and stuff like that and we would listen to Mary Poppins or whatever and so that this big console was a huge part of our our living room but it was all recorded stuff it wasn't music wasn't something you really did mm-hmm. it's something you listened to or you watched on TV because you could get the best in the world in your living room why would we deal with these kids making all this noise and there's eight of them you know <laughs> So, yeah, I can also relate with having a I also have a large family. It's not necessarily my nuclear family. I only have one sibling there, but um my grandparents are on one side it's one of 12 and on the other side it's one of 7. And oh, so we yeah. have a very large extended family. And I think that when I was growing up and wanting to go into conservation, I faced a lot of the same messages of, well, you know, if you did something in the business world or finance or something like that, then maybe you would make a little bit more money. Um, But I think the beauty of having a large family is 
that you have so many different personality types that come to the table. So you might be getting that messaging from some of them, but then there are going to be those other aunts and cousins that are sort of rooting from you from behind. That's like, follow your passion and follow your dream. So, you know, you, that's also formative to, to who you are. And, um, I think it's good to hear both sides of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. But then at the end of the day, you know, you find your own place in that, Mm -hmm. that space of, um, following your heart or following your pocket and hopefully they overlap and (laughs) (laughs) you're lucky if they can overlap a little bit yes um but then also speaking to the music i think a lot of um artists from your your generation um and speaking back to like the music that my parents raised me on music has been used as a tool for so long to talk about issues that are happening in society um, and political frustrations. And I think that it really can be this amazing conduit between issues. So we're talking about conservation and you've been using it to spread messaging about conservation um, and people who might not be as big of environmental nerds as I might be or you might be and finding a new way to reach different audiences, which I think is a really beautiful thing. Yeah. So um, when you were talking about um and this wasn't necessarily even protest music, although it had an edge to it, was um, Neil Young's Ohio. That, you know, that song just made a huge impression on me when I was a teen. And um, so, Neil Young, if you're listening, <laughs> I would love you to play this well guitar, and you can sign on the front. Yes, that's an open <laughs> invite. You can sign in giant letters on the front of this beautiful guitar. <laughs> The beauty of, of this advocacy, I think, is that um, we can spread messaging about um, ocean health issues through the audiences of each guitarist who plays this guitar. So it's not really so much about me playing this guitar as it is about other guitarists playing the guitar, attracting their fans to say, what is he playing? And then being able to post some messaging or a petition or... Um, uh, a request for an action, a meeting um, that can go along with that post. And that has the power to go much further than coastlines. Even though I live on the coastline, that message, because it's going to the audience of guitarists, can reach all the way into those inland areas that don't realize that they're breathing ocean air. Absolutely. Yes. So for the listeners, this is a fun fact. So actually more than half of the oxygen that you breathe every single day, whether you're in Colorado or right on the coast, comes from the ocean. It comes from plankton in the ocean. So um, forests, trees, they're amazing things. I love them too. But there is a massive need to take care of the ocean for the sole reason of enjoying breathing. Right. <laughs> it's a human survival issue. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh so now that we have started mentioning this guitar, to give the listeners a mental image of what we're talking about, um, Jen, can you actually describe 
this whale guitar and um, give a little backstory to its creation and what it's all about. Okay, so um, the whale guitar is, first of all, it's named the whale guitar, not because it's a whale so much. I mean, it is, but the whale was the original title of the book Moby Dick. And so the whale that is the body of this guitar is Moby Dick, but that's not the end of it. The whole entire guitar is the story of the last three days of Moby Dick. So um, the headstock, which is where the tuning pegs are on a guitar, um, is actually shaped like a whaling boat. And the tuning pegs are shaped as skulls. And there's six of them on, on a standard guitar and there's always six whalers in a whaling boat and so the skulls represent the doom they faced by following the leadership of their mad captain and you know we follow that leadership for different reasons in theirs were generally economic reasons or is why they were out whaling also adventure sometimes um the guitar strings stretching from that headstock into the body of the whale are the harpoon lines of these whalers. And on the brow of this white whale who's showing his teeth uh, is a scrimshaw of Ahab caught in the lines the way he was in the movie depiction of the book Moby Dick. That didn't actually happen in the story Moby Dick, but in the movie that is a, a very epic scene. Um, the the um, fret markers on the guitar are abalone whale tails. So we did some research at the Providence Public Library, which has the second largest collection of whaling journals and scrimshaw in New England. It's an amazing place to visit if you ever have the chance, if you're interested. We went there and we studied scrimshaw and the whaling journals, and we found that when a whale was sighted, they would stamp the journal with a whale tail. And when they reeled a whale in, and got his oil and slaughtered him and everything. Then they stamped the page with the full whale. Well, with Moby Dick, they never caught him. He flicked his tail and knocked all those uh, whalers out of the little whaling boat. And then he turned around and he he stove the ship with his head. A, a sperm whale's head is shaped like a ramrod. It's a perfect ramrod. And it it stove that ship and collapsed it. And the only person who lived a tale to tell the tale was um, Ishmael. And the book opens with the famous words, call me Ishmael, and then the story proceeds. Um, so that is what the whale guitar looks like. Um, and it is an absolutely stunning guitar. Um, and I would love to offer the listeners an opportunity to go online and check it out. Um, and then the Whale Guitar Project is actually based in Providence, Rhode yes. Island. So anyone that is New England based or visiting this area um, can also, if I am correct, can find show information and event information where you can see the whale guitar in person. Um, if Maybe you can share what the website is and your social media handles sure. now so that people can go on and, and check out this. Sure. Um, so the website is thewhaleguitar.com and we have um, Instagram and Facebook. If you just look up the whale guitar, you'll find it. It's really easy. 
Yes. And you can send me messaging. I respond to the messaging. Jen is very responsive. Um, they're very active on social media, and they're always planning all kinds of different really interesting events. So I encourage everybody to check them out and give them a follow and give them some support. Um, and so for anyone that is also listening that has now heard about this incredible guitar and is definitely going to go check it out, um, can you give us a little more information about the project? So the Whale Guitar sure. Project. So um, the project has been an, inv- an evolving um, project. Uh, the guitar was built, was completed four years ago. Um, maybe I should tell you a little bit about its build. Of course. Yes, okay. I would love to hear that. Um, so as a toy designer, I had this idea. It happened in this flash of inspiration. I had finished reading Moby Dick, and I had begun to learn to play guitar. I went to a girls' rock camp. Uh, program for a long weekend and finally gave myself the gift of this lifetime of yearning to play an instrument, I I finally began to learn. And I think having that instrument in my hand while this book was happening just made this unusual convergence. But I was a toy designer and everything I draw has become cute over the years. <laughs> and I didn't want this to look cute. I wanted it to look fierce. And um, I had met an artist named William Schaff, who is an amazing artist who was living in Warren. He's living in Warren again right now. And he's done album art covers for Ockerville River and Jason Molina of um, Magnolia Electric Company and Songs Ohio. And I had gotten familiar with his art because I sing in this choir and he did our artwork for us. So like and that all happened from Girls Rock too. So this whole story is this crazy convergences and um, spin-offs from these things and re-interconnections. Um, I began to see his art and I realized he's the one to do this. He's the only one who, who could do this right. And I contacted him and I was like, William, what do you think of this? Is this is this cool or is this Velveeta? You know? <laughs> he goes, Miss Long, I have always wanted to design a guitar. He's like, let's do it. So I commissioned William and he did the drawing. And then I had formed a band to practice playing guitar. And we had an upright bassist in the band named Rochelle Rosencrantz. And I showed her the sketch. And she said, I love it. Let's make it. She had been leaving her industrial design job. She was a lamp designer, a lighting designer, um, to become a luthier, a guitar builder. So it was Isn't like, it wild how, how sometimes I feel like when you put something, something out, out into the universe, yeah, and it, it just all comes back. I mean, it doesn't always happen that way, but it's so beautiful when it does. It was so amazing. And so she took... This was one of the first guitars she ever made. And now she's making them all the time. She was just on Andrew Bourdain's show. Um, Anthony Bourdain? Anthony Bourdain. Yes, rest in peace. Rest in peace. He had a show called uh, Raw Craft, and he featured her on his show building guitars. She built a bass for the bassist from uh, the Smiths. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so she built it, and she's the one who brought Williams um, design to life and it's absolutely stunning it is a beautiful guitar it's something if you see it you're never going to forget it Um, I've certainly never seen anything like it and I don't expect that I'll ever see anything like it (laughs) again in my entire life Um, it's truly unique 
Um, so can you mention some folks, some who, some of the yeah, so who has played this guitar? So there's a couple signatures on the front. We've only allowed very few people to sign on the front. And one is Jay Maskus uh, of Dinosaur Jr. Um, he played that uh, backstage at the Newport Folk Fest. And I don't know if you know anything about Jay Maskus. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Jay yeah, Maskus? but a lot of the listeners pro- maybe don't. So okay. please err on the side of over-explaining. That's what I usually try to do. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, the band Dinosaur Jr., he's just a legend. He's a legend. Um, he has a pedal board that's probably, I don't know, four feet by four feet and uh, amazing big sound. I'm not somebody who can really verbalize much about guitarists, um, but but legendary guitarists. Pretty serious, like when he plays, his head is usually kind of down and he's looking at his pedals and... Um, Uh-oh, there's a problem. Please try again. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> we had a little Siri, I have a little Siri. moment with Siri, which that makes me laugh because, you know what, some other people who are listening probably have had this happen to you where I, I have my Siri on voice command and the only thing that that has helped me with at this time is make me realize how often I say, are you serious? <laughs> And then, and then it will pop up. Yeah, so I think it heard you say he's got this serious. Serious. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. Gosh. So that was a little comic relief. It's totally fine. That is hilarious. <laughs> well, yeah, he's really serious. He's looking down. He's got long white hair, and sometimes wears like red glasses, uh, trucker hat, and he's playing, but. When we handed him the whale guitar, he smiled. Like, he was like, wow. <laughs> How could you not? I know. Yeah. He, so we've got little snippets of him playing it. And it was just like. Are those awesome. on your social media or on yeah, your website? Yeah, yes. On the, on the Instagram. Oh, great. It's on the website, too. The website is clunky. Um, while the early days of this project, I was still working full time. And. So I am just now like starting to sort things out. So um, things will start to get much more crisp on our social media and our website. But if you go through the Instagram, you'll find the images of maybe I'll just repost it today. So you can yeah, that would be great. Yeah. And then this other signature uh, right there is Nels Klein of Wilco. He's another oh, guitar wow. hero of mine. Um, and then r- right here by the line of um, Ahab is a woman named Morgan Eve Swain. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this band called Brown Bird. They were a Providence local band. And Morgan Eve was, was very interested in this project when um, it was being built. She had some downtime because her husband, um, David Lamb, was sick with leukemia. He was in a recovery phase and they were hopeful and so she would come and she came when we scrimshot and just was so interested but then um, he passed away oh. and um, she's now in an amazing band called Huntress and the Holder of Hands mm-hmm. but um, I'd been wanting her to, to play this for years and she did this summer so I was so happy that she did and so she's got a special place on there too so is there anyone that you would... So I know you mentioned Neil Young. Bonnie Raitt. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. Bonnie Raitt, I would... Oh, 
Yeah. Bonnie Raitt does so much for the environment. I don't know if you're aware. She has a fund called the uh, Guacamole Fund. I have not heard that, but it's a great place to give any and all people shout outs that are yeah. doing great work for the environment and conservation and and that's it's like a separate fund that looks for environmental projects and things um the tune yards do you know Merle? yes i do she's got the water it, it was called the fountain project something like that and it's all about getting water to places in the world where water isn't clean I now i'm trying to think that. about um other artists that i know are very environmentally focused and the the two that came to mind were um jack johnson jack johnson and jason yeah. mraz they're both very into the environment um and i'm sure there's just loads of are um, you listening jack johnson yes this is an invite <laughs> we're calling you out yeah <laughs> I w- I'm making some <laughs> banana pancakes. <laughs> yes, we all know that Jack Johnson is a fan of very obscure environmental podcasts, too. So I'm sure he's listening to this. And his, uh, his friend G. Love played it. Oh, see, I've met G. Love a couple times. So th- that might be a route to get Jack Johnson yeah, to play it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been trying. <laughs> well, he's a very nice man. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so let's get back to the Whale Guitar Project itself. So we have this amazing guitar and all of these incredible artists. Um, and what is the organization about? So talk a little bit about your mission and your goals and your vision for this this organization. Okay, so when I first started the project, I thought it was all about saving whales. And we were. I was working on getting um, a... Oh, what do you call it? A partnership with Ocean Alliance up in Gloucester, Mass. And and they were they were pretty into it, but um, they're so far away. They're like two hours away. And I needed, because this was so need, new to me, I needed um, somebody to be more of a guiding, uh, take a kind of a guiding role with it. And they're just so swamped over there. there it's a you know, few scientists, and they really didn't have the, um, the bandwidth to take on something like this. And so I just kind of, I just set out to pop up with it at shows. And that's kind of what it's been. I just will pop up at a show, I'll have the guitar, I'll ask someone if they'll play it, they will or they won't. Some are comfortable playing it right on stage, like they see it and they're like, oh my God, yeah, I want to play that. And they just put it on and they play it. Other ones are like, other people are very, more perfectionist when they play to an audience. They're very um, concerned about the audience having a great experience, which is very important. So they'll play it backstage so they can get to know it a little bit better. Sometimes if I am able to get a hold of them much earlier, like I can meet with them beforehand and they get to know the guitar and then they're super comfortable playing it on stage. So it's been a very... um, kind of a loose project that way. Just as much as I could handle or not handle, if things got busy in my life, I'd drop back. Um, and and um, then I took on, um, we threw the uh, World's Ocean Day first film art music festival in mm-hmm. Providence. That was uh, two summers ago. So we had musicians and poets and we, we, that's when we played A Plastic Ocean. And that's when I was just like, I, I can't, I can't, I have to change my job. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, so it's, it's been evolving and it's been evolving me as a person. 
and um, its mission has evolved to also be supporting marine life as well as the cultural life of Rhode Island because as somebody who's become a musician and interacting with musicians a lot, I see where musicians have such a struggle with everything going to Spotify and music is so free and e easy to get and um, it's hard for musicians to make a living. So when I do an event like World Oceans Day, those musicians get paid. That's part of the um, principle of it. If I do a pop-up and someone agrees, I don't worry about that, but if it's something big like that and it's um, very public and a program, then the the musicians have to get paid. That's part, so it's sort of a two-sided mission. And um, do you pair, so when a musician is playing this guitar, especially if it's at a public forum, um, do you generally pair some sort of messaging on stage about ocean conservation, or um, is it more of a tool to draw the listeners and the audience in and then have them research and then they'll go to your website or your social media pages and learn more about conservation there. It, it all depends on what the musician is comfortable with too and how much time they have. So sometimes they'll have me take the mic and talk about the project and talk about a petition to sign or um, an, an action that's coming up or a march, something like that, or a vote, a voting issue that's coming up. Uh, I've had petitions available on paper for people to sign, and I've done the electronic um, petitions. Um, and sometimes the musician himself has a particular cause. I'm like, what is it about Ocean Health that you are particularly, uh, what really lights you up? Would you talk to the crowd about that a little bit? And we've had that too. So it's been a number of, of different ways. And are you planning on having another festival this World yes. Oceans Day. So yes. World Oceans Day is always in June. Always in I believe June. it was June 8th, 8th. this right. past year. So it's it's generally always in that week. Right. Um, and so if people are listening and they're interested in either attending or are poets or musicians themselves, yes. um, can they feel free to yes. reach out to you on the website or social media? Yes, absolutely. We're just starting to plan it now. Um, I've also gotten involved at the Social Enterprise Greenhouse to get more um, more guidance and solidity on these things. I didn't do it this past year because I wanted to go to the first one that was in Washington. So I'm I'm excited to be planning this one again and also um, to be actually be receiving more support in these endeavors. So um, that feels really good. I'm super psyched about this year and wondering what movies are going to be out at that time that we can present. Um, I don't know if you know anything. Are there any? Have you seen anything on the horizon yet? I have not yet, um, but I know that I have plans to speak with the folks that are organizing the larger World Oceans Day um, events mm -hmm. in the next week or two. So I will know more and can definitely keep you and the listeners yeah, updated. Yes. <laughs> Um, but certainly if you're in New England or in Rhode Island around World Oceans Day in early June, um, look up the Whale Guitar Project and um, we welcome you to attend this festival. Um, so I'm also wondering um, from the organizational in standpoint and you doing all this work to keep, get this thing off the ground and um, 
what are what are some of the most rewarding parts about running the Whale Guitar Project, and what are some of the biggest challenges? Um, okay, so the rewarding things are when, for me, people come up to me and thank me. They just, they'll see me on the street. I didn't expect anything like that. Like, people really relate to it. Um, sometimes when I'm even down, like my energy might be flagging and I don't think I'm making any effect, somebody will come up to me and be like, thank you so much for what you do. Um, and that's, that's just huge, you know? And um, then there's just been the fun of meeting guitarists, um, going to shows and seeing how people respond. One of the sweetest responses was from uh, Pat from Wilco. And of course, because we're recording this, I'm going to totally have a brain lapse on his name. But um, Pat, <laughs> he he loved it, and he played it and signed it, and then he talked about it, and he, and he talked about how music is the universal language, and this is so important to... I see how this is advocating for the ocean and so when you get that from the musicians too who really get it it's it's amazing and then other things that because this has been out in circulation now for a couple of years other things have have um, bloomed from it so now I'm in a another art project where we're collecting plastics to build can't Sansone. <laughs> Is it Sansone or Sansoni? I feel like I always have those blanks too. Yeah. Whenever I'm yeah, no, on I the spot. Feel like such a, a loser. You are not a loser. You are wonderful. I mean, I listen to Wilco frequently, and I oh, didn't have I the name at the ready for you either. So <laughs> you're not alone in this. I think it's Pat Sansone. <laughs> Um, he well, was, if you're out there, Pat Sansone, Pat Sansone, we are big fans, yeah, even though fans. we are not well versed in your last name. Um, we still appreciate you and greatly. He's in the Autumn Defense, <laughs> and you should go see the Autumn Defense too, and you should go to see the Wilco uh, Solid Sound Festival this summer in uh, North Adams, Massachusetts, at Mass Mocha. It's the best festival. It's my favorite festival. I've never actually been to that one, but I have heard amazing things. I'm a huge music fan, huge arts fan, so that's on my it's list of places to go. Especially for someone, I live in Massachusetts, so yeah. I have no excuse. Oh my gosh, just do it. Because if it rains or if you just want to change, you go into that museum. Mass Mocha Art Museum is amazing. Absolutely. It's just like you're, you feel your brain forming new wrinkles of ideas. From the things you see there. It's just so inspirational. Yeah. Something I also wanted, I meant to mention when you were talking about your the festival um, that you guys put on for World Oceans Day is that I am so appreciative that you pay the artists and make an effort to do that. Um, because, you know, they work so hard to create this whatever they're doing it's so this beauty and bring these new ideas and um share their heart and soul with the world um that it's so amazing to put at least some sort of value on that and show that appreciation and i also think it connects to um public access in in the sense that um you know you were saying that 
music is so free and easily accessible now um, that I think sometimes when people think about the outdoors, it's like it's just there. This is where we live. This is our our beach, our coast, our ocean. I can use this. But then you start, you know, you start thinking about. Well, if you put a little bit back into it, it's amazing what you'll get back out of it. If oh, you yeah. if you're able to appreciate it in that way, um, you know, putting that effort in. So I think that's fantastic that you guys. Oh, thank you, thank you. It's really important to me. I I don't know if this is a perfect metaphor, but I started to think about that what we were saying about too much nutrients flowing into the waters and creating these algae blooms, and it's like I don't know, like. The, all the free music it's great it's nutrients for the for the listeners but it's it creates a dead zone for the people who are improvising and bringing the music who's putting who are putting their lives out there because though you know they go to the play shows and are taking home less than their gas money to get there and you know it and and they're wonderful they're amazing so i feel like if this is if i can support both cultures the marine culture and this art and music culture i i feel like i've done something good on this earth you know yeah absolutely um and maybe you can elaborate a little bit more about the intersection of art and conservation and where your vision is with the whale guitar project and pairing the two um, to help move forward that message of conservation but also the message about the importance of the arts and supporting the arts well gosh (laughs) i'm i'm uh I don't... I'm going to be a little fuzzy right now. (laughs) Oh, no, that's totally fine. So where do you see the Whale Guitar Project going into the future? Like, what does a perfect world look like for the organization? Well, I would like to see the guitar... um, I would like to find more measurable, more ways to measure its success. So... You know, the standard things like seeing the Instagram, following, growing, things like that. Um, I have applied to an incubator, so uh, an accelerator that I'm very much hoping to get accepted to so that I can actually figure out some of those things. I would love... I would love to do, for example, a CD where the artists are playing this and then that gets dispersed in some way that it can actually be dispersed to create funds for ocean culture and I will put a special plug in for getting some vinyl pressed with artists playing the whale guitar because personally I collect vinyl and I would 100% buy buy into that that would be cool that would be super cool um I have thought about that um And that may be one of the things we'll we'll pitch in um, the accelerator program. Um, I have like sponsorship ideas, you know, like maybe because this gets in the hands of so many guitars, maybe we find a a guitar string maker and pick makers to sponsor it. So then other guitars get to feel, experience those project products and that could create some income stream to keep the project rolling. but mainly, I think I just I want to see that it's having an impact. I want to be able to see that impact moving to the inland areas. So um, ways of mapping visually, I'm really interested in visual mapping of information. So how can I trace these ripples? So 
Jay Maskus played this, and he has audiences all out in Kansas, you know. How do I know if they've seen it? How do I create that map? And also, when we do things like um, post a petition or post somebody's fundraising drive, so we've posted fundraising drives for Greenpeace and um, other places, like how do we know that we were the our, that our project was the one that somebody saw that spurred them to get involved and don't actually donate. How, oh, how, I'd like to be, be giving presentations in schools um, and colleges. I know like if I could do that, I could really reach people and, and, and share the word about the ocean, healthy oceans that way too. I think I that these are all school ones. Oh really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It wasn't really about the whale guitar, it was about the plastics project though. Yeah. I, I actually have I those. can only imagine that students would love something like that coming into their classroom and being able to either play it or see somebody else play the whale guitar. I think that's memorable. And then you could even pair it with messaging around plastic pollution and conservation and, um, you know, especially up here in New England with how many right whales we lost this summer off the coast, you know. For the right whales, Mm -hmm. that's another one. I'm so saddened about the right whales. And my understanding is that they're so coastal and they get caught in the fishing lines and entrapments like that and like okay so something I would love for this to make happen would be you know if we did a concert for the right whales and um, combining my design background do a call out for designers to solve some of these problems Mm -hmm. that would be amazing to me Um, finding out how to organize such things and make those actually happen is part of my my bigger aim. So we have a few open calls out now from things that I've heard you say to yeah. designers, yeah, um, to musicians yeah. and poets that are yes. looking to be involved with the Earth, the Ocean Day Festival, um, to guitar parts makers that yeah. want to sponsor you. Yes. I think that there are so many fantastic opportunities here. Um, that I am happy to give a shout out and see if anyone well, that's you. listening has ideas. They can either reach out to me um, or to you through your website or on social media. And somebody who makes a pedal that makes an amazing whale tone. <laughs> that would, could always be played. You might even be able to partner with like EDM and electro musicians to yeah. get some sort of like funky whale sound, yeah. <laughs> sound song. The Decemberists have this great song about a whale and be cool if they played it. Yeah. I don't know. There's just... There's I mean, so many opportunities. Tracking the analytics about who's yeah. using the tools you put out there is really challenging. And I would love to hear from any listeners about what their practices are to track that, too, because I know in um, in my day job. So this is also a new podcast. So I know I mentioned the Healthy Oceans Coalition, American Literal Society yeah. earlier in the episode, and I've talked about them before in previous episodes. But listeners are still getting to know me. Um, so for those of you out there 
uh, my day job is working for a uh, the American Literal Society, running a group called the Healthy Oceans Coalition. It's all about empowering grassroots advocates to take place. Like uh, yes, like Jen. Jen is a member of the Healthy Oceans Coalition, and um, we just try to get people involved and engaged in um, federal ocean policy work. Um, and that's something we struggle with every day because, as you know, we put out toolkits and they're trying to help people, um, you know, really achieve whatever their advocacy goals are. But tracking right. um, who's using what and how impactful that was is it's very difficult. So maybe we can work that out together. We can yes. get an expert to, like, help us on that because... Um, I really want to know, I, because if, when you don't have that visibility, then um, it's you're making guesses, and guesses are good. Like you can follow your intuition a lot, but uh, it's nice to have some actual. Absolutely, solid. and especially if you're going for grant funding, mm-hmm. to be right. able to highlight this many people benefited from this tool that we created just helps your cause when you're going for a new round of funding or if you're reaching out to new funders. So I'm definitely interested in, yeah. in working together. To... App. It's like the Ripple app. Yeah. You follow your ripples of impact. So many ideas. It's yeah. like we're in our own little accelerator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, to pivot slightly, mm-hmm. I would. I always love asking guests on the show um, their opinion on what do you think some of the biggest conservation challenges are that we are either facing today or we're going to face moving forward. There's so many. Um, I'm my my big concern um, right now is well, it's it has many many legs, you know, there's climate change and um, our dependency on fossil fuels, um, our plastics addiction, um, I think those are probably the biggest ones that doesn't even get into toxins and Weren't, you know, there's so much. There's so much. There is so much. It can be really overwhelming and something that I really cling on to personally. And I feel like I say all the time is looking for those small areas where you can make wins and make mm-hmm. progress. It doesn't have to be major steps every single time. Um like banning straws or banning plastic bags, which is fantastic, but also, you know, those tiny wins, if you get one more person engaged and one more person reaching out to their member of Congress or voting, you know, those are the areas that I think um, you really start. Yes. Oh, so Jen has pointed to a I voted sticker on the guitar. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it really is just it's it can be very overwhelming, but it's not too big of a of a issue or group of issues to tackle if we all are in it and working together and passionate about right pushing everything forward and um, if you just start doing it and you you know one step forward one step forward one step forward you start to have an impact and you start to become you start to become recognized for what you're doing and you you receive encouragement too, which has been really helpful. And then you receive other opportunities. So I when when I was 
when we were still building the whale guitar, there was a person who took interest in it um, named Yarrow Thorne, who was starting something called the Avenue Concept. And the Avenue Concept is a private foundation in Providence that puts up the public art in Providence. Providence has gorgeous murals now, thanks to uh, Yarrow and the Avenue Concept. And um, he actually contributed a little bit of funding to help the guitar get completed, which was amazing. Like, he just stepped up and was like, hey, I want to help you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he's been putting up all this public art, and I've kind of been shadowing his career, like, how's he doing this? This is really cool. I want to know more about it. And we would have coffee every now and then. And... We'd been trying to, I'd been trying to set up a date where I could just kind of shadow him and see how he's getting these things done because it's fascinating to me how people get things done. And so I was like, well, I'm in his neighborhood. I'm just going to drop into his headquarters. And I dropped in the moment that he and his um, uh, operations person, uh, Brian Downing, and um, Betsy Jones, who is the... Um, I don't, I, I'm getting the titles mixed up, sorry. But anyways, they're there to help him get things done. They were talking about needing two uh, artists in residence, they call them a three-dimensional artist in residence, to help them gather the plastic needed for a, an international sculptor who was coming in to do an enormous sculpture on Kennedy Plaza in Providence, which is like the central plaza of Providence. So he's going to make an enormous sculpture and he wanted clean and colorful plastics. And he doesn't really consider himself to be an environmental sculptor or, or that it's about recycling anyways. This is Steven Siegel, mm-hmm. uh, this sculpture, sculptor. But he wanted clean, colorful plastics He's built sculptures in other cities, and they would get a pallet from their recycling center, and it would be dirty and jagged and maybe have vermin even, and he didn't want to work that way again. And at first, so I dropped in in that moment. I'm like, I want to work on this. And so I got hired to do that. And at first I thought it was a little bit of a cop-out. We should be getting the plastics from the oceans because... Yeah, so are they all... Reci- they're all recycled plastics, though, so it's not going to be made out of new plastics. It's all recycled. It's okay. all recycled. It is not specifically ocean plastic. Um, but what I realized as I, as I was brainstorming with my, my uh, partner, Bonnie Combs, in this project, she's the other uh, 3D resident, and she's amazing. She's just an environmental hero. She's a fantastic person. I realized that... One, if we start clean, we done clean. So there's this whole stream of products that people use to clean their bodies, their hair, their home, their laundry, that doesn't have anything to do with food, and it's already clean, so it's going to be clean. And if we can figure out how to get that, the beauty of that is we can also call people's awareness to the fact that they're using an enormous amount of it's not single-use plastic, but it's short use. These bottles last 500 years, like in in nature. Like if they're left out there, they just don't break down. Mm-hmm. And we use them more than a day. We're using them maybe three months or something, but they're still just piling up out there. And so there's a message there too that's important. And so this enormous sculpture required 22 cubic yards of this stuff, and we we're just like, oh my god, how are we going to get that? It's happening so fast 
We found that line. That's almost mats. scary. You're yeah. like, I know we're getting toward our goal and we're going to get things done, but, <laughs> but slow it down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Laundromats, like we're coin up laundries where people go to do their clothes. This stuff is just bubbling out of them. It's like the trouble with tribbles in, in Star Trek, right? <laughs> like they're just, all this plastic is just, it's bubbling out. It's it's profitable for the manufacturers and it's too much trouble for them to take their own containers back and reuse them, at least in the United States. Um, it costs them more money to reuse it, apparently. And so it's just getting thrown out. And so virtually everything we've collected is directly... Uh, we're affecting the landfill. It's not going in the landfill. It's going in the sculpture, and then after the sculpture comes down in a year, the sculpture will have a life of about a year. Then we will send the plastics to be remanufactured. Uh, we're trying to figure out exactly to whom and what will be made with them. We're thinking something like park benches that would go back to the schools that contributed because, so we know that the laundromats are, they're like this mother load vein of plastic. Yeah, we're shining a light on laundromats right now. And I actually didn't realize that they, I think it's like, if I had thought about it more, I probably would have, it makes sense, but it's not something I really hear talked about all that often. Um, So that is really important to start looking at who are other people that can be improving their business practices? Right. Um, and laundromats is not one that necessarily popped into yeah. the forefront of my mind. Yeah. Think about it, but yeah. Think about every single laundromat. People come there to do one thing. It's to wash their clothes. And so as a recycling source of material, it's only one or two kinds of plastics and it's clean. And yet it's being tossed mainly in the landfill. So where, um, where and when, and can you give us more information about viewing this sculpture? Is there a, a deadline for um, its completion? or So the, we're still figuring out the exact date that the sculptor is going to come to Providence to do it. Originally, it was going to be in May 2019, but they are doing some uh, refurbishments on Kennedy Plaza. They're redesigning it, and so the city still has to release to us, to to the avenue concept, when they can come in and install and if there's going to be anything in the way. So it, it will happen somewhere between May of 2019 to the fall of 2019. We're just not sure when. We do know that the sculptor doesn't want to be there in the heat of the summer yes. building this. Yes. So it'll either be spring, late spring, or early fall. So, and has the sculptor given any insight into what shape this? Well, the shape, um, he's done this in Pittsburgh, okay, and a couple other places. And the shape that he's done there is sort of like one of those buoys in a swimming lane, you know, it's kind of a capsule shape, but enormous like 30 feet long, wow. 35 feet long, and 15 feet high. Yeah, so and it, it will also be involving fishing net cast off from Rhode Island and um, and bicycle inner tubes will be used to hold it together as well thanks to a number of the bicycle shops in Providence are contributing all their used inner tubes. 
Wow. So, yeah. So fascinating. Cool. So yeah. uh, all the more reason to follow the Whale Guitar Project on social media and, and visit their website because I'm sure that Jen will be posting and her team will be posting updates as they learn more about um, when and where to view the sculpture and then um, attend events and shows yeah. um, and be involved with their work. And one thing that was really satisfying um, like I had mentioned, I did the first school presentation about this project. Um, so we know we can get everything we need just from the laundromats. However, when teachers saw what we were doing, because we posted it on the on social media, many teachers reached out to me and said that they wanted to get their students would be so excited to participate in this. And can we? get them involved and do a presentation. So I did my first um, presentation just this past Wednesday, and it was really well received and super excited about that. So we're going to be rolling it out. So I apologize to the teachers I haven't gotten back to yet, but we did our first test, and I will be getting back to you and setting (laughs) stuff up with you. Um, Are there any other events that you have coming up that you'd like to give a shout-out to? Uh, I don't have anything particularly uh, whale guitar yet, except that we have something called the Wayward Christmas at the parlor in Providence, and my band, the Swampers, is going to be playing, so I'll bring the whale guitar, and you can see it there, and uh, we can talk, and um, I will be planning some, I'm taking a little bit of break time to get the next year going. Um, but I'd love to know what you love about the Whale Guitar Project and what you, how you would like to see it go forward. And uh, I'm hoping 2019 is going to this, be this big year of doing the planning and the implementing to make it take another level. Absolutely. For the so, environment. Yes, so. definitely. Go check that out. Introduce yourself to Jen if you do. Let her know your thoughts. I mean, even if you don't go to the event, if you don't live local, um, feel free to reach out to them um, on their website or on social media. Um, so as we start to wrap up, I would love to know uh, what advice do you have for anyone that's looking to get into the conservation or the art space, and um, just quickly, something that I really admire about you, and I think has been a pretty common theme in our conversation today, is that there is no time frame on when you can pursue your passions. You know, you said that you started art school at 29, and then you learned how to play guitar even later, and now you're pursuing this um, organization that's focused on pairing art and education and conservation. And so I think that that is a really important thing that I really admire about you. And I think that you are, are a living, amazing example of is that if you are passionate about something, you care about something, um, go for it. Yeah. I move toward it. Just take some step toward it. And, um, Trust, trust your intuition. It sends you these images sometimes, and you don't always know what they are, and, and you move towards them. And um, there is, there's a myth that I, I love to talk about, which is, I believe it's Diana. Um, she was a weaver, and sometimes you don't have the threads yet, but you practice the weaving anyway, and the threads come. So um, I think sometimes it's just what I've done. I, I get um, kind of a nudge towards something, and I follow it. And um, 
and little by little things start happening. So you can learn at any time in your life. Uh, if you're interested in music, for women specifically, I would recommend Girls Rock Rhode Island. They have the Ladies Rock Camp. That's how I got started. I am so grateful to that. That will blow the doors of intimidation right off for you so that you can begin to learn an instrument. Um, art is available. Um, there's lots in Providence. There's so many uh, arts programs, arts classes, things like that. Just give it a try, and it's learning to turn off that editor voice that is shutting you down sometimes. Um, I'm not saying I don't have that voice, because I do. Late at night, four in the morning, call me. I'll tell you a scary voice that's talking to me in my head right then. But the thing is to just get up and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. you know? So um, I hope that's helpful. It's amazingly helpful. And I think that I relate to that um, 100% is... You know, you, you often have your inner compass that's trying to direct you somewhere, and it might seem like there's a perfectly logical path to one side, and then there's this scraggly, scary path on the other side. But, you know, every, so everything is saying to go down the one that's clear mm -hmm. and makes sense. Um, but internally, you want to see what's down that other one. Yeah, and, you, you know, know. and don't be afraid to go that way and right. take a shot and try. And um, I think that's how I have ended up in the, the with the career that I have and with many of the opportunities that I have had in my life. I mean, this podcast included um, has been through just putting myself out there, making connections, I think is a huge one and following yeah. up with those connections and making sure you never burn bridges if you can't help right. it, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, important. or if you can't help it. Um, and then don't be afraid to try. Right. Right. I think some of the biggest lessons can be found in failure. If it doesn't work out, you'll at least learn something, hopefully. Providence, we've got something called Design by Failure. Um, which I've been trying to get to, and I've failed to get to the last two times. <laughs> <laughs> and that's lesson yeah. one in design right. by failure. You yeah. fail to go. <laughs> but I'm going to try again. You know, I, I, I do have this tenacity of like, okay, I, I missed that, but I'm going to go again. Um, failure is uh, a huge teacher. And something that isn't a teacher is perfection. And, and I think that sometimes when we try to leave the nine-to-five life um, or even envision an artistic life. We, the thing that shuts, tries to shut me down a lot is this, this sense of like, if, have you written a business plan? And it's like you have to know everything about this, like it's tested and done. And it's, and it's like, I have a friend who wrote a one-word business plan. It's called Karma. Her, her whole business plan was just karma. That's all they wrote. Actually, they were a pair. And they, they've done amazing work together. So Yeah, so you don't... I think the moral of, of all of this is that if you have an interest in a drive or want to try something, do it. Do it. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, that's okay. Hopefully you learn something and, um, you know... If it does, that's fantastic. So you don't need to have it all figured out to move forward. Right. Just start doing whatever you can to to move toward right. that goal or that interest. Everything is a way in. Absolutely. Um, 
So before we wrap up, so for listeners out there, yes, of course, we are going to have Jen play the whale guitar. I couldn't have her come in here (laughs) and talk all about how amazing it is um, because it truly is spectacular and not um, let you all hear what it sounds like um, and show off some of her musical talent. Um, But before we do that, I just really want to take the time to thank Jen for coming in today. Um, I appreciate you driving up from Providence. Um, I know that you could have done a ton of other things with this this holiday. It's it's Veterans Day for everybody listening. Um, and then also thank Lex Media for being so generous with um, allowing us to record in their podcast studio here in beautiful Lexington, Massachusetts. And my friend Devin Shaw for um, making the connection and, and serving as a bit of technical assistance today. Um, I am just very appreciative of all of you. And if you all liked what you heard today, um, you can find us at the American Shoreline Podcast Network, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, If you would like to explore podcasts and more um, ocean and coastal news, you can visit our website at coastalnewstoday.com and sign up for our newsletters. That is also where you can go in addition to liking the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today on Facebook um, to give us input and feedback and have a conversation with us. Um, So thank you, Jen. Thank you, Devin. Thank thank you, you, listeners. Wow. And I say thank you. I really appreciate the invitation and the encouragement and the support that you have been giving me for, I don't know, I think it's a year and a half, maybe, almost two years. Yeah, well, I get so much joy out of helping people realize their advocacy goals and helping spread your message because I I fully believe in what you do and same thing with everybody that's either featured on this podcast or part of the Healthy Oceans Coalition. Um, There are a lot of amazing people out there that are doing incredible things to help be kind to the planet and be kind to others. And sometimes I think our news cycle can be a little bit oversaturated with (laughs) negativity. Um, So if we can infuse a little bit of positivity and help prop each other up wherever we can, um, you know, that's my mission and that's what I want to do. So I'm, I'm happy to have you on the show and look forward to continue working with you. And specifically right now, I'm really looking forward to hearing you play the guitar. <laughs> All right. Let's get that thing out. Thank you. Let's see. I may need a little sip of water first. Weird water bottle sounds. Yeah. (laughs) I also have to take off this sweater. Sure. Yes, take your time. It gets in the way. Check the tuning again. Things get... This is a Tom Waits song, and uh, Tom Waits, of course, is invited to play (laughs) the whale guitar. (laughs) That would be a dream. That would be. 
As big of a music fan and music lover that I am, I I do not play any instruments. I dabbled with piano and I played the flute for about a week when I was in middle school and really did not connect with it. Um, and I really wanted to play the drums when I was growing up. That was like my big interest, but uh, the family quickly squashed that because it seemed like a really annoying thing, I think, for them to have to listen to. Um, but now they have, like, quiet kits. Yeah. See, I if I was only growing up in, in this day and age, I would be... Who knows what I'd be? <laughs> but well, that's okay. Yeah, see, you're inspiring me. I'm 29 right now, I so maybe I will pick up... I didn't start learning until <laughs> I was... 47. Yeah, see, so. you're a total inspiration. I'm going to go buy a drum kit. <laughs> and look up, uh, there's got to be a Boston um, and I mean, chapter ro- of... The Rock Camp. Yeah, there's some though that are specifically for women. Mm-hmm. Because the difference is, in a rock camp, they have you do covers. Mm-hmm. And... What happens with covers is the audience expectation. They expect you to sound like Freddie Mercury, right? <laughs> or Bonnie Raitt. Or Which, that is such a high bar. I mean, such no one is going to ever sound like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> we should all go see Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. I have yet to see that, but definitely want to. I want to see that. Maybe I'll do that tonight. Um, where in Girls Rock, you write your own song. So you're there for a week. Well, for women, it's a long weekend. You let them know what instrument you want to learn. You form a band with other women who have no idea what they're doing. You write a song together and you perform it on the third day in front of a real audience. That sounds so fun. Yeah, and you... Slightly scary, but very fun. But doing things that scare you is so important. Exactly. Mm -hmm. If you you have that growth mindset where fear is just like a prod to grow, then, you know... You know, like, you know you're doing something right if you're a little bit scared. Yes. Yeah. That's kind of how it is. It's so good. All right, so this is a Tom Waits song called Belly of the Whale. And um, there's a tambourine there. I do have a tambourine next to me. If I feel so inspired, I I might. This is a good song for a lot of, like, Oh, wait. So we have Devin over here, too. We have a little shaky egg egg for you. I'm going to pass along. Yeah, that's got something in it. Maybe thumbtacks. I don't know. It's like Easter. There might be some jelly beans in there. Okay. So here we go. Ready or not? Oh, that's an interesting.